We have never, ever been unloved. And I really hope that what we covered last night about the call and how it relates to marriage terminology, and it runs all through the Bible. I have so many examples that we could have looked at, uh, but you think of the shepherd lover in the Song of Solomon. You know, I take the Song of Solomon being a story of King Solomon going out to the flocks that he had, the extensive flocks. But instead of going out as the king, he dresses as a humble shepherd. And while he is there, he sees and meets and woos the Shulamite woman. And she doesn't know that he's the king. He wants to win her, <clears throat> not as a, a mighty and a powerful and a rich king. He wants to win her as a humble shepherd. Such a beautiful story of what Christ did for us when he came into this world. And he comes as the humble shepherd. He comes as the lamb. Uh, he doesn't come in all of his pomp and power and glory. Uh, he wants to win us. Uh, as a simple shepherd and a, and a humble man among us. But one day we're going to see him in that glory and in that power, and it's going to be absolutely awesome and amazing. Um, I just want to mention that uh, if you haven't seen out on the table, we have a uh, few copies. Uh, I've been working since the COVID shutdown on notes on the New Testament. And you can't even imagine the time that these notes have occupied. But one of the reasons I chose the book of Jude is because I hadn't done the notes on Jude yet. And the notes you have are going to become a part of notes on the New Testament when we get ready to do the next section. Uh, we now have the Gospels and Acts uh, is part one. Part two is Romans through Philemon. Part three is out. It's the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And I'm now working on trying to finish up. Uh, I have a huge task ahead in First and Second Corinthians. I don't think we could get through them in this conference. But uh, I do hope these will be a blessing to you. And, you know, as I look at them, I, I can always think of so many more things that could have been added. But... We do what we can do, and hopefully the little that we do is helpful. Just want to thank all of you for coming again and making uh, our gathering together here possible once more this year. And uh, we heard last night from some of our friends and family uh, and very dear and faithful fellow workers and supporters that are uh, watching us as we're streaming uh, these sessions. So greetings to all of them. And uh, today I told Nan, I've got to start moving or we're never going to get through this book. So if you will open your Bibles to the book of Jude. <clears throat> I've basically broken the book down into three divisions, which I amended last night for you. Originally, I said, know yourself, know your enemy and know your mission but we really need to uh, put know yourself and your mission, know your enemy, and then know your God, because the last two verses are absolutely astounding, and we'll be getting to them on Sunday morning. The great Chinese strategist Sun Tzu 
said, know the enemy and know yourself. In a hundred battles, you will never be in peril. When you are ignorant of the enemy but know yourself, your chances of winning or losing are equal. If ignorant both of your enemy and yourself, you are certain in every battle to be in peril. So it's very important for us to know ourselves and know our enemy. And of course, unfortunately, Sun Tzu did not know his God as far as we know. We fortunately do, and therefore, not being great military strategists, we are still more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Let's pray before we get into our study this morning. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the grace that you pour out on us on a moment-by-moment moment and day-by-day -day basis. We thank you, Father, for your word, which constantly conveys to us the love that you have shown and showered on us through the sacrifice of your Son and our Savior. And I pray that God the Holy Spirit will take control of our gathering this morning. I pray that each and every one of us have properly prepared ourselves before we uh, began by examining ourselves and just seeing if there is anything in us, any thought, any word, any deed uh, that has been an offense to your holiness, to your righteousness, that taking advantage of that marvelous provision of 1 John 1, 9 and other passages, we would confess that sin knowing that it was covered at the cross, knowing that all that's required is for us to remember that. That sin was paid for, and therefore we can be restored to fellowship and usefulness in your plan. Bless our time together in your word. Open the book of Jude to us in a new and powerful and effective way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been, in my 50-plus years of ministry, this has been the most intense, uh, the most demanding, and the, uh, the most, well, busy, I guess, be the easiest way to say it, year of my life. It's not even over yet. Here we are just in October. This is my 13th conference and camp this year. I'll have two more before I'm finished. We're going to have 15 total this year. That's in addition to trying to write for the notes on the New Testament. I have never had such a busy year, but I'm going to let you know in advance. Next year, I'm going to be cutting some things. I don't know what exactly I'm going to be cutting out, but next year is Nan and my 50th wedding anniversary. And uh, I, have never, I have never taken a sabbatical um, I know pastors who take a year off and go and study in Israel or take a year off to write. Uh, I've had to write in the middle of a very busy schedule, and uh, believe me, it's been very, very intense. It has taken hours and hours and hours. It's taking its toll. I look at Nan, and it seems like she's getting younger, and I look at myself in the mirror, and I feel like I'm getting older very rapidly, but whatever. Uh, I'm trying to make my time count while I'm on this earth because time is short and uh, we want to make it count. I'm hoping that we can finish the notes on the New Testament before our departure. I want to uh, call our attention back to 
the challenge in the book of Jude to have mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. And then as we move on into verse 3, he tells us that while he was wanting to write to us concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary. The word literally means that he had strong inner compulsion to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. I'm going to try to simplify things a little bit this morning. Uh, as much as I am able. Uh, but if you ask yourself, how can mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to me? My answer would be contend earnestly for the faith. How can I be sure that mercy, peace, and love are multiplied in my life? Contend earnestly for the faith. I want to remind you that the book of Jude is not written to pastors. The book of Jude is not written to evangelists, to missionaries. The book of Jude is written to those who share in the common salvation. You say, what is common about our salvation? He doesn't mean common in the sense of not being special. He means common in the sense of that which we possess together that which each and every believer shares. We could start, for example, with the five works of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God does exactly the same thing for all of us. Number one, He baptizes us into eternal union with Jesus Christ. Number two, He performs the work of regeneration. We are born again. We become a new creature in Christ. Number three, he takes up permanent indwelling within the spirit of the believer. The newly created human spirit, created in the likeness of Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, created in righteousness and holiness. God creates a holy of holies within the being of every new believer. Body, that's the outer temple, soul, that is the holy place, but then we have the holy of holies, and that is the newly created human spirit, which becomes the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. That's why John is able to say in 1 John, that which is born of God cannot sin. There is a part of you that cannot sin. We were just singing, we have been unfaithful, we have been unteachable, we have been unfaithful. But there is that part within each and every one of us, that residence of God, the Holy Spirit, that can never, ever be touched by sin. We need to keep that in mind. Not only do we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, each and every one of us is uniquely gifted by God to serve Him. Each of us has a part to play. We have a role within the family, and that is because of our spiritual gift. And finally, each and every one of us are sealed by the Holy Spirit, our guarantee of the day of redemption when we will enter into the presence of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is our common salvation and it's a wonderful thing to know that we share these things, and we could go on and on because if we went through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, we would come up with 40 or more things that you and I share together. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, however, there is a part for us to play in contending earnestly for the faith. I mentioned to you last night, the word here comes from agonizo, and uh, we get our word agony from it. 
Uh, it's, of course, from the ancient Greek uh, training center, the place where the athletes would prepare themselves was called the agona. And the verb agonizo is a word that was used both in the athletic and the military realm, uh, particularly in wrestling. Uh, wrestling, by the way, in the ancient world was not like collegiate wrestling today, not even like jujitsu if you're a fan of MMA, because in ancient wrestling, such things as uh, biting the nose, gouging the eyes, kneeing the person in the groin, all of those things were acceptable, and so it was pretty intense, and you can well imagine how someone might end up agonizing in a wrestling match. It was also used for the soldier on the battlefield as he came face to face with the enemy as he held his ground in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so contending earnestly for the faith reminds each one of us that there's going to be some intensive struggle in living the Christian life. But this is not you going out. Uh, we're going to read here pretty quickly about the enemy. Uh, this doesn't mean that you're to go out and confront the false teachers, the false apostles, confront those of different religions. Some people get so wrapped up in attacking other religions that they never communicate the truths of the faith and the wonderful and marvelous things. Remember that our message is a positive message. Yes, there is bad news to the gospel, but the bad news only prepares the way for the good news, and the good news is always positive. Positive. We have a positive message, and it needs to remain positive as we speak about what God has done for us through Christ. So again, the question, how can I multiply the mercy, the peace, and the love of God in my life? You need in your own personal life to contend earnestly for the faith. And I stress again, this is not so much an outward battle. You know, I, I get... I. I'm losing my hair here. I'm, I, I sometimes want to just pull my hair out as I watch our so-called leaders, as I watch those who are in positions of power, and I see the absolutely foolish decisions that they make. But our job is not fighting them. Our battle is not an external battle. Our battle is an internal battle. I want to teach you this morning in this first session very quickly, how do I multiply mercy, peace, and love? How do I contend earnestly for the faith? Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. There are many, many parallels between Jude and 2 Peter, and we'll be seeing a few of those as we go through today. Just beginning in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained like precious faith. Jude calls it common salvation. Peter calls it a like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Deity here is ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied. The same word is used. Plethuno. Once again, it's in the optative mood. It is the wish and the desire of Peter for each of his listeners, but beyond that, it's the desire of God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that his grace and peace will be multiplied to you. And now he tells us how in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
The struggle is a struggle for learning. It's a struggle for growth. It's a struggle to lay hold of the deeper truths of the Word of God. You will never plumb the depths in this lifetime, nor in eternity, to the depths of the Word of God. I mentioned last night in Ephesians 2.7, throughout all the ages to come, He is going to demonstrate the greatness of His grace to us in Christ Jesus. And I believe that we're going to sit at the feet of the greatest teacher who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ, as He expounds to us the Scriptures. And I believe as the ages of eternity roll on, we will find that this book that we so often take for granted has no bottom to its depths. So grace and peace be multiplied in the knowledge. The word for knowledge here refers to experiential knowledge. It's not just head knowledge. It's what's often referred to as heart knowledge, but it's actually life knowledge. It's experiential it's not just I'm hearing about it. It's not just I'm reading about it. It's I'm experiencing it. Someone came up to me this morning and talked about how recently they have come to such a strong sense of the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in their life. That's something that God desires for each and every one of us. He wants it to be real. He wants it to be something that is alive and powerful and effective in our life. So by the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So how can I multiply this knowledge? Well, he tells me in verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all, that includes you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue. Everything you need for life, everything you need to meet the pressures, the problems, the difficulties, the struggles that you go through is found here in the Word and through the Word, through receiving it by faith, through applying it by faith. As James says, receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but don't be hearers only, be doers also. It's when we hear and do, it's when we transfer that head knowledge into life experience that we actually begin to have that sense of the presence and the power of God in our life. Verse 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's what Paul calls being conformed to the image of Christ. Read Romans 8, 28 through 30. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. To be conformed to his image, to reflect his glory is what he's talking about. To become a partner or a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world through lust. Now, all of this is laying the groundwork for how we multiply the mercy, peace, and love of God in our life and how we contend earnestly for the faith. Let me introduce you to the real battlefield beginning in verse 5. But 
for this very reason. In other words, that all of these things might become a reality in your life, giving all diligence. You know, God provides for us, as he says above, everything necessary for life and godliness, but there's one ingredient that you and you alone can provide, and that is diligence, strong inner motivation. It's the very same word that Jude uses when he said that I was very diligent to write to you about our common salvation. He had a desire that was very strong and very compelling to write to us. And of course, the Spirit of God took that motivation. And this is the amazing thing. I learned this in Brazil when I was 16 years old, living on the Padu River with a Stone Age tribe of Indians. And on the Padu River, a very swift, very deep river, uh, there are rapids every 100, every 200 yards. The, the uh, river, as I recall, drops 60 feet per mile. So you can imagine how rapid that river would have been. You could go along in a canoe, and oftentimes you'd look down, and you'd be looking at the bottom 15 feet below you, and then pretty soon uh, it shallows up, and you're going through rapids. And one thing that the chief's son, Alenka, taught me was, you can only steer the canoe if you're moving faster than the water. You have got to be moving in order to be guided. And that became a very strong principle in my life. When I'm going through life and I start standing still, when I start being hit and buffeted by the winds and the waves of life, and I stop and I stand still, that's when I can't be guided. God guides us as we move. He has told us to go. He has told us to be witnesses. He has told us to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And it's as we go, we are guided and directed. And so he's now going to show us how we can move into the fulfillment of the plan of God for our life. For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. You have faith. You've trusted Christ. That's great. You have eternal life. Unfortunately, this is where many believers stop. They trust the Lord Jesus Christ. They receive the gift of eternal life. They sing glory, hallelujah, for the rest of their life, and they never move on. Peter is saying, move on. I want God's mercy and peace to be multiplied in your life. But there's that ingredient of diligence and strong motivation that we have to add so that we can add to our faith virtue. The same word that was used earlier in verse 3, it refers to the power of God. See it up there at the end of verse 3? He called us by his glory and virtue. Arate. It was used in the ancient world for the power displayed by an athlete in their contest or competition. Uh, we could call it power on display. We could call it effective power. Power that is able to accomplish the need. How in the world am I going to begin by adding to the saving faith I have in Jesus Christ the power of God? Well, there's only one way. I've got to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can exert the power of God in my life. And the very, very simple lesson that many of us fail to learn, many believers fail to learn and understand is, how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? And the answer is very simple. Empty yourself of yourself. 
I use an illustration when I'm in remote locations. I just used it up in Nagaland. I take a, a glass and I fill it full of dirt and then I fill it full of water and I say, if I give this to any of you, who would drink it? And they say, no, we won't drink it. So then I pour it out and I fill it with water and I say, will you drink it now? And they say, no, we won't drink it. And I say, why not? And they say, you have to wash it. It's a simple illustration. The same thing is true in your life and my life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. All the Spirit of God needs, he's already there. He's dwelling and residing permanently within you. All he requires is for you to cleanse the vessel so that he can exert his power out through you. And of course, you see this illustrated throughout the scriptures. Read Psalm 30. Read Psalm 38. Read Psalm 51, the confession psalms of David. David talks about the anguish and the agony that he went through as he was under divine discipline for his sin with Bathsheba. He committed adultery. He destroyed a nation. He committed murder. How much more guilty can you get? And he comes to the point where he is broken and humbled, and he says, I will confess my sin. Cleanse me, and I will be whiter than snow. And all of those sins, as terrible, as horrible, and as destructive as they were, were washed away and he is restored to fellowship and restored to the joy of his salvation. So make sure that the Spirit of God is in control before you try to add anything else. And once you have the virtue of the Holy Spirit working in your life, add knowledge. That's why we're here this morning. We're looking into the Word to add knowledge, and once we walk out these doors, the next step is self-control. Self-control means that now the Word of God is in the driver's seat. The Word of God is now guiding my thinking. The Word of God is directing my decisions. That self-control then needs to be continued. And so perseverance is not any good for me to walk out and have self-control for five minutes and then pull out on the street and some crazy driver pulls in front of me and I'm... One of the hardest places for me to stay in fellowship is on the road. you got to come back to that self-control, and sometimes it's confessing and confessing and confessing, and 30 seconds later you're confessing again. But you've got to keep doing it because we're the ones responsible for our spiritual life. Perseverance in self-control is going to result in godliness. What is godliness? 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. So what does godliness mean in your life and mine? Christ manifested in my life. Christ manifested in my thinking. Christ manifested in my words. Christ manifested in my conduct. And what is the dominant thing that we see in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? We see grace, mercy, and compassion, but you wrap it all up and it's the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. If you have a loveless life, you have a Christless life. Let Jesus Christ take control of the steering wheel of your life and look on others not as they appear. We tend to look, as Scripture says, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Start looking at the heart. Start looking at the soul of those around you. 
Stop looking at their foibles and their faults and their failures and realize that here is an eternal soul for whom Christ died. Here is someone that is loved by God. Here is someone that is special in his sight. Here is someone for whom Christ died. And all of a sudden, our whole attitude to those around us is transformed and has the power of the Spirit of God for ministry to them. Godliness results, as he points out here, in brotherly kindness, brotherly love. As I said, we begin to look on others in a new light. And finally, we grow beyond brotherly kindness to the love of Christ for every member of the human race. This is an amazing passage that shows us step-by-step spiritual growth from infancy to maturity in just a few verses. How can I contend for the faith? This is it. Now, Jude's going to have his own version of how we can do it. He doesn't get to it until verse 17. He wants to tell us what the enemy is and what to be alert to and watch out for first, and then he's going to go through his own version of what I just gave you from, first, from uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you will, turn with me back to the book of Jude. We now have an idea contending earnestly, my agona, my agonizo, my intensive struggle is not here. You know, once we learn this, life becomes a whole lot easier. We're spending all of our time with things out here. We're angry about this. We're mad about that. We're frustrated over here. All of these things, and all of it is a distraction. That is not the battle. The battle's here. If I win the battle here, none of this matters. Once we learn that, what a difference it makes in our spiritual life. God did not call me to change the world. God called me to change me. When he changes me, the world no longer matters. Now I can begin to have an effect and an influence and an impact on people around me, not because I'm out running around trying to change everybody else. The impact is invisible. The impact is spiritual. The impact is supernatural because now there is a force at work in my life that we see in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see later in the apostles, we see it in the life of the apostle Paul, an impact that was emanating from them, a power, an influence that was flowing through them into the lives of other people. There are people you can argue with the rest of your life. You'll never change them. There are people that you can simply come into contact with and with a simple word or a simple action of kindness, you'll change their life forever. Why in the world are we fighting battles that we can't win when there's a battle that we can win every day? It's right here. It is multiplying the mercy and the peace and the love of God, the grace and the kindness of Jesus Christ in me. This is where the battle must be fought. So I encourage you to take these things to heart. Contend earnestly for the faith. Notice, contend for the faith. What is the faith? The faith is the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the purpose of that truth? Well, it's so I can go out and change the world. No. It's so that he can change me. Contend earnestly 
for the faith. How do we summarize the faith? It's very simple. The life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is fundamentally it. It's all about him. Again, go back to 1 Timothy 3.16. Great is the mystery of godliness. Read through that verse. That is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. By the way, I mentioned last night, I believe Jude was written after Paul, Peter, and James had all been killed. And he mentions here, and then he'll mention later, the apostles who had gone before. And I believe that he was stepping into a great vacuum uh, that existed because of the departure of those very, very great men. And he is now filling in in their place. Contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That faith is not what I need to take as a club to beat other people over the head. That faith is what I need to do spiritual surgery in my soul to make me more like the Lord Jesus Christ moment by moment and day by day. Now, he gets into the enemy. He gets into uh, what we would call uh, knowing your enemy. He says, certain men have crept in unnoticed. I want to just call your attention to the little word certain. It's an important word. When you read uh, certain men, uh, that little word certain is used in a very important and a very special way in Scripture. It means that these men are known. Paul sometimes mentions, particularly in his writings to Timothy, people by name. Alexander, Hymenaeus, people who had perverted the word of God, people who were teaching false doctrine. Jude doesn't need to mention them. He simply says certain men and they're known, they're recognized as who they are. Uh, just a couple of examples in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, you remember that a certain lawyer came to the Lord Jesus Christ and asked him, what must I do to enter the kingdom? And Jesus, of course, tells the parable of the well, actually, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Why do I say the story instead of the parable? Because there was a certain man who went down the pathway and fell among thieves. And whenever that word certain is used, we're not dealing with a parable. You'll remember in Luke 10, 38, there was a certain village in which a certain woman lived, Martha and her sister Mary. Once again, definite identification. Uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 20, uh, this is often referred to as a parable. I believe that it's a story of what actually happened. A certain rich man died and went into torments, and Lazarus, the poor man at his gate, died and went into paradise. And the little word certain there tells me that this is an actual event. No one, of course, but the Lord Jesus Christ would have known what was going on in torments and in paradise. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. The word crept in is a word that is used by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4. It's used in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1 uh, about those savage wolves that would come in to the church. 
Certain people have crept in, and the crept in indicates that they have come in by devious means. They have come in through deception. Uh, they have presented themselves as something they were not. But there's a little bit of rebuke here because it says they have crept in unnoticed. When false teachers come into a church and no one in that church has the discernment to identify that these people are fake, these people are phonies, it's a rebuke to that local church. Someone should be able to identify these people. They have crept in unnoticed, and they were long ago marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn, the word means to turn, twist, or distort, they turn the grace of God, distort the grace of God into lewdness. The word lewdness or licentiousness is actually a word that refers to a shameless life. We're going to see some of the evidences and some of the manifestations of a shameless life. But it's people who know no shame. People who will take advantage of you and have no shame. People who deceive you. People who manipulate you. People who will use you for their own ends and they have no shame. People who gratify their own desires and they have no shame. This is the idea behind the word lewdness and deny the only God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word to deny here is a word that means to reject, to repudiate, to thrust away. Uh, the same thing is used in 2 Peter 2.1 where it talks about those who deny the Lord who bought them. Even though Christ died for them, even though he paid the penalty for their sins, yet they are denying him. I just want to point out that the fact that they are marked out for this condemnation does not mean that God ordained that they would do this. The fact that they are marked out is actually picked up for us when we get down to verse 14. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. In other words, their deceptions, their actions, their abuses of the grace of God were foreknown long, long before. Uh, really, when you go through the scriptures, it's astounding how many warnings we have. The Lord Jesus in uh, Matthew 7 and verse 15 said, Beware of false prophets. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 and in 1 Timothy warns of those who would come deceiving and taking advantage of the flock. And so those warnings run throughout scripture. 2 Peter chapter 2, we'll notice in just a moment. They deny the Lord both by their words and by their actions. But what Jude is going to focus on most of all are their motives. What are their motives? Now, we get to what we might call the real enemy. I want to read for you very quickly verse 5 through 7. I want to remind you, though you once knew this, again there's a hint of rebuke. This is something you've been taught. This is something that you knew. I have known believers who have been under great Bible teaching and then they drift away. Uh, something becomes uh, a sidetrack in their life. They drift away from the Word. They stop being a part of a local church. They cease to be under the sound teaching of the Word of God. And you see them a year or two or three years later, they have forgotten things they once knew. 
They forget passages of Scripture. They forget promises of Scripture. They once knew them, but it's no longer even a part of their understanding, their knowledge, their vocabulary. It's gone. It's been erased from their mind because they've allowed themselves to become uh, a pawn of the world and a victim of this world system. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see in these verses, this world is out to erase from your soul the truths that you know. Every single day, there is an attempt by this world, and when I say world, I'm talking about this world system. And what I mean by this world system is the fallen realm from Lucifer himself, now Satan, through the fallen angelic realm, to the demons active in this world, to the false teachers who are their pawns and their servants, that whole system through the corrupt political systems of this world, the corrupt governments of this world, the whole system is designed to wipe from your soul the truth of the Word of God. That's where the contending is. That's where the battle is going to be fought. Laying hold of and holding fast to the truths of the Word of God. So here we go. Follow me through verse 5 through 7. I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Think back in your mind. Think of the plagues. Think of the Passover. Think of the parting of the Red Sea. Think of all that God did to bring those people out of the Exodus. And somehow this world system was able to wipe all of that from their mind. You ask yourselves the question, how in the world could ancient Israel see what they saw and come to the promised land and say, God can't take us in? happened in a very short time. You know how it happened? You remember as they went through the wilderness? They came to all kinds of problems. At the Red Sea, there was too much water. They got by the Red Sea, and then there was no water. And then they got to Meribah, and there was bad water. They had water problems. But think of the fact that just in those three tests... They became so distracted from the spiritual life and the power that was available to them that they allowed conditions and circumstances in the world to rob them of the rich treasure of truth that they had. So that when they come to the promised land and they see a few giants, they say, no, can't do it. Too tough. Same thing happens to believers every day. Verse 6. The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. How in the world could you be an angel standing in the presence of Almighty Holy God and think that somehow you could revolt and set up a kingdom of your own? How could you fall prey to the deception of Satan who we're told in Isaiah and Ezekiel went around to the angels peddling his theory of revolt and a third of the angels bought into it? How is it possible? Verse 7. 
He's referring here to a specific group of angels, which we will get to in due time. Verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example to suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude gives us three examples. And these three examples set in front of us a single chain of events. I want to ask you to consider this. What in the world does Israel's failure in the wilderness have to do with angels who did not keep their first estate? What's the connection? What in the world is the connection between angels who did not keep their proper domain and left their own abode with Sodom and Gomorrah? Jude is not just coming up with ideas and examples and throwing them out thinking, oh, this will, this will really shake them or, or this will really be something they'll remember. I'll, I'll have a message that'll, you know, pastors try to run around thinking, oh, here's the proper word or phrase. I never worry about it. The Spirit of God is going to pour into my brain from weeks and weeks and weeks of study and I could throw this away and teach this whole book to you and I'd be able to give you more information than you'd ever be able to write down. I rely on the Spirit of God to convey the message. I don't try to find neat little things that, oh, this will catch their attention. Oh, they'll remember this. Nine times out of ten, if I say anything that you're going to remember, I won't even know what it is. But there's a link here that you must get. Israel in the wilderness, angels that rebelled, Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he is lining these things up for you and I to get it. And I want you to understand, because I don't, think, I don't want you to think that uh, I don't continue to learn. God showed me things about this about three, 2 or 3 o'clock this morning, that you're going to get fresh off the press. It doesn't get any fresher. When I go to a conference, I get very, very little sleep. And the reason I get very little sleep, if I'm not awake and thinking about it, I'm asleep and dreaming about it. Two nights ago, I dreamed, and my dream was there's a word in Jude that I have to look up. You know what word it was? It was the word certain. That's why I just gave you the examples I gave you, because they came up in a dream. I'm dreaming, and that word certain kept coming up, and what is that word, and why is it there, and what does it mean, and it's very important. And so, of course, when I woke up, and you know, I feel like I've been beaten with a ball bat all night, got to look up that word certain. I got to come up with a few examples to illustrate why that little word is so important. I want you to think about this while we take a break. What is the link between Israel in the wilderness, the angels who left their abode, and Sodom and Gomorrah? I'm going to give it to you in our next session. Let's pray. Take a break. Father, thank you for your grace. Bless your word. Make it come alive to us. Let us not leave this place unchanged. Let us not go out into the world and be distracted from the battle within, the battle that must be won if we're going to have an impact on this world. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.